Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. Here in the United States, we are off celebrating Thanksgiving this week. And if you are too, then presumably you feel some level of affection for either your family or your chosen family or perhaps even your favorite trio of podcasters. So in celebration of that, we have pulled together some of our favorite articles on the subject of love. And while it's probably not a good idea to love your family to the degree that some of these articles explore, we do hope you enjoy the episode and have a safe and happy holiday. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Uh, We have a lot of articles out nowadays, it feels like, of, you know, millennials are killing blank, the coffee industry, the whatever. Like, millennials are killing everything, according to journalists. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so tired of it, mostly because we all know it's the boomers, but carry on. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we have an article that very kindly points out something that millennials are saving. (gasps) Whether we're happy they're saving them or not, you'll have to be the judge of. The title of the article is How Hong Kong is Modernizing Love Hotels. Do you guys, do you know what a love hotel is? I can make some guesses. (laughs) Yeah, your guesses are correct. It's it's (laughs) hourly hotels for the purposes of intimacy. They originated in Japan, but they've been popular in Hong Kong since the 1960s. And unlike here, they are culturally very acceptable. They're not disreputable. There are some seedy ones, but there are also plenty of really nice ones. And it really Mm -hmm. is seen as just an opportunity for some privacy, which is fairly hard to come by in some parts of Asia. Oh, yeah. When you have population density to the levels that you do there, like there's definitely an acceptability to it. Right. But cultural acceptance aside, in the past, they have nonetheless been pretty much used exclusively for their intended purpose. But recently, (laughs) couples, especially young couples, have found a much wider range of uses for them. And technology plays a big role, as it always does with those millennials. First, the new generation of love hotels promises zero FaceTime with any employees, which people really like, you know. Ah, yeah. So you reserve your room, you pay for it over an app, and that gives you a digital code to unlock the door. Nice. And then after you check out, the code is changed remotely again, and somebody else can go in. So, which I I stopped for a minute. I was like, so there's nobody cleaning the rooms in between? Like, (laughs) you know, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure the scheduling accounts for at least some perfunctory cleaning or hopefully more in-depth in the current environment. Right. Right. One hopes. Mm -hmm. Second, (laughs) the rooms, it's now very common for them to be furnished with TVs and streaming and game services because privacy doesn't necessarily mean intimacy. Sometimes a group of friends just want to hang out. Yeah. So they've kind of become little home away from homes, sort of. And this is this is a general trend in all love hotels. But in Hong Kong, it is particularly relevant because, as you noted, Hong Kong is officially ranked as the least affordable place to live anywhere in the world. Six out of 10 Hong Kongers aged 25 to 34 live with their parents. Yep. The median income for this age group is about $2,000 a month converted to U.S. dollars. And a one-bedroom apartment in Hong Kong costs about $2,100 a month just for rent, never mind food and utilities and all those other things you have to spend money on. Yikes. And, of course, with all these kids at home, older married couples also find it just as hard to get any privacy of their own. So, in fact, the average Hong Konger, married or not, visits a love hotel about five times a month. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And if you don't reserve in advance, you may find yourself waiting in line for hours to check in. 
So I mean, just Ooh. the visual of that is insane to me. Like we're all just waiting in a line on the sidewalk. That's yeah. yeah, very awkward. I mean, now I'm like imagining like, you know, you have a partner and you and your partner and your parents both are going to separate right. rooms at the same love hotel just because y'all need some separate time. Yeah, yeah. And, like, wow. and some of the users did note, despite cultural acceptability, it is still embarrassing to run into someone you know in line. Mm-hmm. One couple that was interviewed said they go out of their way to pick newer love hotels that come equipped with small kitchens where they can cook dinner together. Because if you time it right, a couple hours at a love hotel is still cheaper than dinner out at a nice restaurant. And, they, you know, date night, you don't want to go out every single night. They just go somewhere else and cook dinner together. Others even said, and this is kind of sad, they rent the room by themselves just to take a shower, eat a meal and pretend they live alone for a few hours. Oh, so, honestly, yeah. I was imagining that. Yeah, yeah, I was totally like, I can imagine going and doing that and just having a private little respite uh-huh. away from my parents and the pop density. Wow. Yeah. So they do have a nice place to go, but it is sort of an undercurrent of sadness <laughs> beneath it all. <laughs> it should be noted that the walls in love hotels are just as thin as they are in the regular apartment buildings in Hong Kong. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as one love hotel guest put it, you can hear the noise from other rooms, but you don't know who they are, so it's less embarrassing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. better to listen to strangers than your parents, I guess. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. Neighbors. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Very true. <laughs> and while tourism is down worldwide, including in Hong Kong, Love Hotels did see a big drop in business right at the start of the pandemic. But now they say they're seeing about twice as many guests per day as they were before COVID struck. So people are clearly in need of a little, you know, a little mini vacation, even if it's only for a few hours. Wow. I don't know. I I don't see it taking off here. Just I mean, maybe in a place that's super dense, like New York or someplace where you're really struggling to get more Mm -hmm. space. But Mm -hmm. we're nowhere near close to Hong Kong, even in our most dense cities, so. I feel like I can imagine Las Vegas innovating on this idea, just because, but. (laughs) They probably already have the infrastructure. I think it's a little bit more about making that seedy motel just something a little bit more winky. Metropolitan. (laughs) Right. Right. It's about changing the cultural view of them more than, we've we've never thought of hourly hotels. No, we have. We have them. We just just have to make them acceptable to everybody. Right. 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 Next link. Next link. All right. A little bit of a content warning on this, but it was too irresistible for me not to include this week. Uh, There's an article from Discover called Sexual Cannibalism, Why Females Sometimes Eat Their Mates After Sex. Hmm. So we all know like species like praying mantises and even snakes have been observed engaging in sexual cannibalism. But trying to understand why this happens is sort of the chief conceit of this article. So scientists have come up with a number of hypotheses for why sexual cannibalism occurs, positing that males make good meals or aggressive females <laughs> get confused about what is prey and what isn't. <laughs> I much prefer the the theory that they're tasty over she's too dumb to know what's food and what's not. Like, right, or too aggressive. She's gotta know. Like yeah. this whole thing of like females are too aggressive and can't stop themselves, like definitely raised some red flags to my feminist perspective, but <laughs> I'll, I'll push forward here. So one theory posits that sexual cannibalism is what scientists call a maladaptive side effect of female Mm. aggression. It's borne out by studies showing that aggressive females are more likely to eat males. Females that are more aggressive when hunting tend to get more food, so they have better odds of surviving and having children. 
and the unfortunate males in this case may simply be in the way. Oh, <laughs> a different theory for sexual cannibalism holds that it's the result of females being choosy. For example, less impressive male wolf spiders were more likely to be eaten by the females. But it's not just spiders that eat mates after sex. We've documented female anacondas strangling their mates after mating, mm. likely to use as food later, likely being the key operative word of that <laughs> sentence, because <laughs> who knows? We should she study. She could have just been mad at him. You don't right? know. Right? <laughs> I told you that's not how I like it. <laughs> anyway. Um, Isopods are a kind of crustacean that also engage in sexual cannibalism, but it appears to go both ways with this species. Both males and females have been seen eating their mates after sex. <laughs> They're not really quite sure why the males go after the females. I mean, they did just go through the trouble of creating offspring with them, but it may yeah. only occur when females die shortly after mating or when males are dangerously short of food. It's like, oops, she died. <laughs> Don't want to let it go to waste. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> responsible. Yeah. It kind of is, right? It's, a, it's an efficient use of protein, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've also seen sexual cannibalism rarely but we've seen it in octopuses as well. For mm. one instance, a female blue octopus killed a small male after he had mated with her multiple times before dragging his body to her den for dinner. <laughs> Typically, the females kill males by strangulation in the octopus world where they will wrap a tentacle around the male's mantle to cut off the flow of water to their gills, which effectively suffocates them. Whoa. But it's not like males are helpless. Some will take the route of appeasing their potentially ravenous partner, so male nursery web spiders will come bearing gifts like tasty insects for their hungry mates. Um, mm. Those that do are found to be cannibalized at far lower rates than males that show up empty-handed. So bring the equivalent of the roses and the heart-shaped box of chocolates, y'all. It could yeah. go a long way. <laughs> There's even one species of mantis that will sometimes time their approaches to the female with sufficiently strong gusts of wind so it can cover sign of their advance. Like, you can't smell me coming. Please don't eat me. They're ninja mates. That's right? what they are. I mean, especially for mantises where this behavior is so common, uh, mm. I, I appreciate the efforts to try to stay alive here. Yeah. There are some males that will take a lot more of a direct approach. For example, male nursery web spiders will tie the legs of their prospective mates with silk prior to mating, something researchers have turned a bridal veil. <clears throat> eh, if she's into it, you know, I, mean, I don't judge. I'm not going to kink shame the spiders. <laughs> yep. The strategy not only protects the males against predation, it also lets them mate for longer, which increases the chances of having offspring. A 2016 study confirmed that males who opted for bondage significantly decreased their chances of getting eaten by females. And the article ends with tying the knot indeed. <laughs> the bridal veil. What a nice way to protect everybody's Google search history. <laughs> That's like when museum artifacts are like, it was used in an ancient fertility ritual. <laughs> okay. That's one way to phrase it. <laughs> so gentle. So politic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from lithub.com by Genki Ferguson, and it's titled Objectophilia on the people who fall in love with inanimate things. Ooh. So, and we're yes. not just talking about anime body pillows here, right? No, although we get into a little bit of that. <laughs> hey, all right. <laughs> so, the first known case was in 1979. 
Ija Ritter had seen the Berlin Wall on television at the age of seven and struck by its long parallel lines fell in love. She tied the knot on their sixth visit together, marrying the Berlin Wall and taking it as her last name, <laughs> Berliner Mauer. <laughs> and she regarded the tearing down of the wall as a catastrophe and slept with a 1 to 20 scale model until her death in 2015. Whoa, that's committed. Yeah. I mean, and it's marriage, so I guess it is a literal It's for life, you know, until death do you part. <laughs> that's yeah, right. right. I mean, if one of you dies... At least you know the other one's faithful. <laughs> yes. um, in 2018, Akihiko Kondo spent 2 million yen to marry animated pop idol Hatsune Miku. And Miku, a Vocaloid, mm -hmm. was developed in 2007 by Krypton Future Media. She serves as a mascot for a voice bank software in which users can compose their own songs for the virtual character. Miku stands 158 centimeters tall, sports teal pigtails, and has a suggested vocal range of A3 to E5 or B2 to B3. She's appeared as a hologram at concerts and as a doll at Kondo's wedding. None of his family <laughs> attended the ceremony, oh, as the yeah. article points out. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I know this is unrelated, but if you have a synthetic vocalist, why even bother with a range? Like, shouldn't they just be able to sing anything? I mean, it's a branding thing, you know? Yeah. Like, mm. this is the voice's character. Like, mm. <laughs> it's it's intense. Mm -hmm. It goes without saying, of course, that objectophiliacs are often the target of derision or mockery. Mm -hmm. uh, but the author's expanding on the idea of love as well, and perhaps even argue that ridiculous though they may seem, these cases are just the natural conclusion to the relationships the rest of us already hold. Oh. So, yeah, the author Genki Ferguson has a debut novel, Satellite Love, and it concerns itself with one such objectophile, Anna Obata, a 16-year-old girl in southern Japan who falls in love with a satellite. Mm -hmm. It was through writing that Ferguson found himself drawn into the psychology of objectophiliacs. So Ferguson asked Dasha Yildirim, a Vancouver-based ceramicist, how she felt <laughs> about this object worship. And Yildirim creates what are called ball-jointed dolls. They're highly mm. tuned porcelain figures with complex articulated joints, and well-known names can sell for thousands of dollars. Wow. People love dolls for two reasons, she says. On one level, it's an aesthetic love. They love these dolls because they're beautiful, poseable, and customizable. In essence, a value-based love. And on the other hand, people love dolls because they feel real. Mm. The dolls feel sad when you're sad, happy when you're happy. They reflect what we value in ourselves. And Yildirim isn't the first to come to this conclusion. There's a fair bit of scholarship on the concept of comfort objects, the toys that children latch onto, and the adults who never threw them away. A popular working theory introduced by pediatrician Donald Woods Winnicott is that of the transitional object. In the early stages of development, the child sees their mother as a sort of extension of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, when the child wishes for something, the mother provides, creating what Winnicott calls a subjective omnipotence. Hmm. But with time, the realization that the child is actually separate and therefore dependent on the mother creates shock, stress, and frustration. So Winnicott maintains that it's here that the child creates a dependence on the transitional object, often a toy or a blanket. Mm. And this transitional object is the first separate item that truly belongs to the child. And it's something to project this new, scared sense of self onto. So the question is asked, is it so surprising then that these cases of objectophilia seem to have become increasingly prevalent in the modern age, a time when our true distances from each other, our inability to ever truly understand, have become all the more apparent? 
And this is where Ferguson wants to expand on this idea of love. The working definition of objectophilia mentions only sexual or romantic love, a rather limiting expression, one which bars any possibility of platonic, aesthetic, familial, or religious love. So this brings us around to Shintoism. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> this is very much a fake what? piece. The author is uh, pulling together a lot of uh, disparate places, but I think it's a pretty fair argument and a nice way to reflect on, you know, one's own novel that they've worked right, on. Right, right. So, <laughs> <Nice>. um, <laughs> one of the oldest sustained animist religions still practiced today is Shintoism, and it has deep roots throughout Japan. It predates even the arrival of Buddhism on those shores. It's a religion that maintains that all things, living or otherwise, contain kami, something halfway between a spirit and a god. Hmm. Kami are traditionally viewed as existing within nature, but by some definitions include man-made objects as well, including cars, cell phones, or the Berlin Wall. (laughs) And if this is sounding familiar, perhaps Marie Kondo's philosophies are also coming to mind. Hmm. It's not without irony that Ferguson notes how Japan's obsession with mascots perhaps mirrors their own polytheistic animist backings. The same nation which now produces hologram Hatsune Mikus has a deep-rooted belief in the spirit of the inanimate. Mm -hmm. It's also why, to mirror Anna's own journey with the satellite, Satellite Love also follows the overlapping tale of Soki Tachibana, a young Shinto boy who finds himself doubting his belief in the kami in a crisis of faith. As one character gets drawn into a modern definition of object worship, so too does another find himself pulling away. Hmm. And Yildirim says, unlike with people, we can't put expectations on inanimate things. And unlike people, they can't disappoint. We don't love objects despite them not being human. We love them precisely because they aren't human. Hmm. And so Ferguson wonders if this could be used as a bomb for lonely times. When connection with another feels so difficult, could we instead look around deeper into the materials that surround us? Perhaps emerging with a newfound appreciation for the little things that make up a life, the small values, desires, and personalities that our objects reflect. Some might refer to this as a regression, but Ferguson argues that instead it's a process that allows us to come to a complete, deliberate understanding of the self, and perhaps by turning that appreciation outwards, it can turn into something for each other too. All right. You you <laughs> won me over at the end. I was sitting there going like, all right, no, these are all just crazy people. But I, you know what? It got philosophical enough. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm willing yeah. to buy it. Yeah. You know, at first I wasn't sure if I was going to do this sort of article because it's a little <laughs> bit different from normal. Yeah. But I thought it brought in a lot of interesting ideas. It promotes a really good sounding book, honestly. Yeah. And it, it talks about a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah. That's like the whole trend of putting googly eyes on things. Like, it's just <laughs> exactly. a, a bigger, deeper version of that. But everybody likes a stapler with googly eyes on it. So, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, half my apartment is anthropomorphized at this point. So, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this one comes from 1843 magazine. It's called Before Tinder, There Was Dateline. And this is basically Ooh. sort of a, a history of the very first major computerized dating service in the UK in 1966. Uh, and apparently huh. it was more widespread than I thought. This was actually a thing. You know, we tend to think of online dating as a modern thing. And certainly the online social connection of the two people using the service is new. But even back as far as 1966, these companies were using computers to create matches for their customers. So the guy who did this is called John Patterson. And he was inspired Mm -hmm. by he was from the UK, but he had visited America. And while he was there, he was sort of hanging out around Harvard. And he was inspired by Operation Match, which was this real small little program that was run by and for students 
three bucks a pop. Hmm. You fill out a little questionnaire. And in a few days, they mail you the names and phone numbers of your top matches. So it was just sort of a small, fun thing within Harvard, kind of like Facebook was in the beginning. Um, Yeah. And at the time, they were using one of the school's computers. That was one of the big hurdles for anybody trying to do a business like this is where do you get the computer? Mm -hmm. At Harvard, the computer was an IBM 1401, which they note is a five-ton machine, basically as big as a room. And (gasps) at the time, in 1966, they called it the Great God Computer. And so I'm not sure if... People running the school were aware that this is what their computer was being used for. But Patterson saw this and realized, oh, man, this is way more than just college kids having a little fun. This is a real business idea. So he went back to the UK. Somehow he rented time on a computer that was owned by IBM because basically any computer programmer back in the day, that was what you did. You would rent an hour on this Mm -hmm. machine. You'd go into where they kept it, use it and leave again. He put out a bunch of ads. That was sort of one of his specialties was marketing. He had uh, one of his Mm -hmm. they had a bunch of his earlier businesses in the article. One of his earlier businesses was selling eggs that had been sort of sprinkled with gluey chicken feathers to make them look more fresh. Basically, they were just eggs, but he had gone and re-glued a bunch of feathers onto the eggs. So people were like, oh, this came direct from the farm. Gross. So he was clearly, he was big into image. He was big into marketing. And he ended up getting Mm. a lot of people signed in. (laughs) And then, and to sort of bolster this, aside from the standard, tell us about yourself kind of questions, applicants had to draw an image. There were six squares on a piece of paper, and they had to turn those six squares into a picture that would, quote, show up the personal differences which make each one of us into a separate, unique individual. Now, there is absolutely no way Mm. the computer at the time could have scanned that or somehow interpreted what you This was very clearly just him going, ah, let's make this a little more Freudian, and then we're going to toss that data out and just (laughs) feed in the little punch cards of, yeah, I'm this many years old. This is the kind of person I'm looking for. But at any rate, it was uh, wildly successful. They sort of ran into some hitches early on. In 1976, there was an Office of Fair Trading Inquiry, which is sort of like a government fraud examining organization, because someone made a complaint to the government after the service matched a Jewish woman with a Palestinian man. They said, you're not taking enough data. This is not cool. You you need to, uh. you know, this is fraudulent. <laughs> Basically, you're claiming to match people when we're clearly not yeah. a match. Anybody could see that if they took two seconds to talk to us. So they had to sort of add some more parameters and get a little bit better about their data. But as of 1982, mm-hmm. it cost 45 pounds and it had 44,000 customers. So, I mean, it was a... <gasps> That's a lot of money back yeah, then. Yeah, and it was back in the UK. I mean, the population is much smaller back then and also compared to America. It was a significant process whereby people would go and meet a date, if not the love of their life. And they continued all the way up until 1997. They only started declining after Patterson's death, and they kind of failed to make the transition into digital. They were still Mm -hmm. having people, you know, Mm -hmm. mark things on a questionnaire, and it just wasn't. But they were pioneers in the industry of the industry. That's right. Well, and they note that, like, today there's over 1,400 dating apps in Britain, and the modern programs have certainly gotten more precise about the kind of data they collect. But most of them are still largely based on a particular algorithm called the Gale Shapley algorithm from 1962. And it's just a basic patterning algorithm, which refines matches with repeated iterations of proposals and rejections. And they're all still basically using this same algorithm. There's no reason to change it because it pretty much does what it says it does. It works. Yeah. yeah. So and they've said that it statistically, as far as like following up with people who ended up in successful relationships based on their matches from Dateline, Tinder is more effective. 
Nonetheless, wow. <laughs> they, but that may also just be because of the sheer number of users. One of the big complaints about Dateline right. was, look, 44,000 is a lot, but if the love of your life isn't a customer, you'll never find them on right, there. Right, then so, you'll just get a close match based on the sample yeah. set. But, you know, hmm. he was a pioneer and uh, he created the first offline dating app. <laughs> and look what that hath spawned That's right. Nothing today. but good things <laughs> came out of it. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, the islanders in the Seychelles are rallying to save the world's biggest seed, according to The Guardian. They are nuts for Coco de Mer. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you that this is worth looking up, if only for the photos, because it looks like an extremely salacious, suggestive section (laughs) of somebody bending over. And, I, you know, maybe I'm projecting, maybe this is just sort of the way it is, but I always get delighted when I see pictures of carrots that look like a leg crossing or, you know, a tree that it just... This this is worth seeing. So you're saying it looks like a giant peach emoji is what you're saying. Yes, yes, but kind of leathery and enormous. I mean, it, it's from a rare palm. It's often sold as souvenirs, but apparently they're prized by tourists because of this suggestive shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the locals are trying to help save it in a new planting scheme. It's a much-loved cultural and botanical icon of the Seychelles. It's also known as the sea coconut or double coconut, and it's endemic to these islands and produces the largest and heaviest seeds in the whole world, which is a fascinating case of island gigantism. Mm. It's found growing naturally on only two of the Seychelles' 115 islands. And with only about 8,000 mature trees in existence today, it's been named as endangered. And apparently it's also dioecious. So it has separate male and female plants that can take up to 50 years to reach sexual maturity, depending on environmental conditions. And before the pandemic, there was also a thriving black market for the shell, which led to poaching in protected areas. But there are also other climate threats like forest fires, erratic rainfall, pests and disease. So conservationists have turned to the islanders to help secure the palm's future. They launched a scheme last summer where residents were invited to apply for permission to plant up to five coco de mer seeds each on their property. They noticed that, you know, people were stealing them. There are poachers, there are anti-poaching banners and billboards all over the islands. But, you know, it's probably just because it's a popular tourist souvenir owing to its suggestive shape. Yeah, if it makes money, people are going to constantly go after it. You might as well try to grow as many as you can. Exactly. And so what they're hoping is that the islanders will have a chance to legitimately grow coco de mer plants instead of maybe harvesting them and kind of taking them illicitly. And since 1978, the trade in coco de mer nuts has been controlled via a permit system. So if you grow the palm on your property or even trade it, you have to be registered. Each nut is numbered and tracked. Even the coco wow. de mer shells are sold to tourists for anywhere between 170 to 200 pounds, and they still have to come with the permit. So the sad thing is for most of the Seychelles residents, it's not accessible at these prices, right? Sure. So they reasoned, you know, if we give away the nuts in a planned manner, then the incentives for stealing them is not there. So if you want to participate and you live in the Seychelles, you have to (laughs) submit a detailed form along with payment of 500 Seychellois rupees, which is not very much, to qualify to plant the seeds on the property. And then when the palm gets to be 25 to 35 meters high, the property has to have a minimum area of 10 by 10 meters available per seed. The staff is going to visit each property to evaluate size, soil type, and decide if the applicant is eligible to plant as well as how many seeds could be accommodated. The demand has been huge. They thought there would be interest for about 30 nuts, but they've received 104 requests 
for 422 nuts. Hey. Yeah. And it's all over the the Seychelles Islands as well. So it's been put on hold because of the pandemic. But with the pandemic hopefully coming to a close or at least manageable, they will also be noting the GPS coordinates of the place of where each seed is planted. It's gone very high tech. But for people who have coconut mare seeds planted on the properties, they are super happy, super thrilled. And again, go check out the pictures. You can understand why. (laughs) So, I mean, I assume they taste mostly like a regular coconut, right? Do we know? Does it, do we have any idea what they taste like? Or is it so rare that no one's ever written down the experience? You know, it's um, the souvenir nuts are not viable. The fleshy kernel inside the shell is usually removed and then processed separately for sale in East Asia because they believe it's an aphrodisiac. So it's... Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. if you can make more money off of people who think it's going to help you perform in your amorous right. desires, then yeah, you know where it's going to go. <laughs> Okay, so so here's what we're going to do. We're going to move to the Seychelles. We're going to plant a bunch of seagrass for grains. Oh, yes. We're going to get a couple of these double coconut trees in mm-hmm. our yard. The- I'm game, man. <laughs> and then we're going to speed run it and broadcast yes. it. <laughs> and then we'll create NFTs of the work so people can enjoy our new There homesteads. you go. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm. That's way better than working placentas back in. <laughs> so I will say that uh, if you decide to Google Coco de Mer at work, there's also a uh, lingerie brand that oh, Google dear. seems to auto-suggest to, so maybe use your phone <laughs> off right. the network uh, just in case. What a clever lingerie maker to know to take that name, though, for their stuff. That's right, but it's yeah. subtle. Yeah, that's a lot classier than some brand names could be, for sure. Yeah, it's true. Next link? Next link! So this is about the first worldwide virus. There have obviously been many viruses before, but this is the first one that really caused a global, I should say computer virus. I should mention that. Ah, um, <laughs> I just yes. realized uh-huh. I hadn't, hadn't specified. Yes, yeah, the first uh. <laughs> worldwide computer virus that kind of covered the whole world and brought down systems everywhere simultaneously. You may remember right. it. It was, it was in May of 2000. It was called the love bug virus. Oh, I remember this. And I, I knew people who got hit by it, who they, they got tricked by it and they clicked the attachment and their computers were really, really damaged. And what oh. it was, was it sent an email that had an attachment called love letter for you, which was, of course, meant to be very enticing. People would open it up and then oh, yeah. it would overwrite files. It stole passwords and then it automatically sent itself to everyone in the user's Microsoft Outlook contact list. So if they, if they didn't use Microsoft Outlook, it didn't do any good. But, of course, a lot of people used Microsoft Outlook for their email back then. So it spread insanely fast. Within 24 hours, it was global. It infected 45 million machines and caused billions Ugh. of damage to corporate networks. Both the U.K. Parliament and the Pentagon had to shut down their systems for a while to avoid infection and kind of get a handle Dang. on it. And within a week, they had traced it back to the culprit, who was a Filipino computer student named oh. Onel de Guzman. And police came to his door and they interviewed him and he sort of said, I I might have done it on accident. I don't really know. But either way, (laughs) at the time, the Philippines had no hacking laws at all. And so (gasps) no no charges were ever filed. It was just sort of a, gosh, don't ever do this again, young man, kind of thing. So this article, it sort of goes into the history of it, but to me, it's almost largely a fascinating look into what it takes to do investigative journalism. Because this author Mm. is writing a book and he decided to track down Onel de Guzman over in the Philippines. And he just said, you know, I wanted to go interview this guy for the chapter on the love bug virus. Mm -hmm. And in searching for him online, you know, he's looking for any sort of reference to this guy in what he called a forum dedicated to the Philippine underworld. 
And I have no idea (laughs) what that looks like. Wow. But he found somebody had posted a message that seemed to imply that de Guzman ran a mobile phone repair shop in the Quiapo district of Manila. So the author was basically like, okay, cool. I'm going to fly to Manila. I'm going to find the mobile phone repair shop. I'm going to find this guy. And he discovered upon his arrival that there were dozens of phone repair shops. It was like a, Mm. a retail area where just lots and lots of people all went to get their phones repaired. So he didn't actually speak Tagalog. And so he just wrote down Onel de Guzman's name on a piece of paper and started wandering around showing it to people and looking to anybody to show him his name and seeing if anybody recognized it. And eventually somebody Uh did. And they Uh, said, oh, uh, yeah, that guy works at a different mall over in Manila. It's not this place. It's a different one. So he goes over to that uh, shopping center. He wanders around for hours, again, just sort of holding out this piece of paper with this guy's name on it until finally somebody again recognized it and pointed him to a stall at the very back of the mall. And again, he's waiting for hours for de Guzman to show up. Like at this point, he's done nothing except suffer to find this guy. And eventually he did find him. De Guzman showed up and he admitted fully intentionally writing and disseminating the virus. He's like, well, it's been 20 years. I can, you know, (laughs) tell you the story now. Right. And he said what it was, all he wanted to do was steal internet access passwords because at the time he couldn't afford internet service. He never intended it for it to leave the Philippines because it wouldn't have done him any good to have passwords to internet accounts from other countries. He needed a Filipino account. Right. But he just didn't grasp how quickly this thing would spread. It didn't occur to him. And he basically sent it to one person to test just to even (gasps) see if he got a, a, a password back. And then he went out drinking. And the next thing he knew, his mother had called him saying the police were looking for a hacker in Manila. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And so he had his mother hide his computer equipment and he played dumb. And he's like, I really never intended for this to cause all this damage. And I was really sorry. But I mean, essentially what brought everyone down globally or not everyone, but a huge number was basically an experiment, like a pilot or a beta. Yeah. Like a college kid just going, I'd like to save 50 bucks a month. Like he wasn't trying to damage anything. He just wanted a free internet account. That's amazing. And he said, you know, he said, sometimes I get my picture on the internet. My friends say, hey, it's you. I'm a shy person. I don't want this. That was his, you know, please don't, (laughs) don't turn Mm -hmm. this into a big thing, which of course the author's like, oh, sure, I won't. And then he did. And he published it on (laughs) But, uh... But it was fascinating. I think, you know, people underplay, I think, the amount of physical labor and really tedious effort that goes into doing some of this research. Yes. You know, once you find the guy, it's the goldmine of the whole story. But sometimes you got to wander around a phone repair area in Manila for hours on end speaking the language. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. Well, Ars Technica is ready to talk about the heavy hitting topics. Because we're going to talk about virgin births, specifically parthenogenesis, how females from some species can reproduce without males. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Animal virgin birth. All right. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, every myth has an origin or some kind of real life analog. But the species that do this, at least documented and known in science, are somewhat limited. They cite an example a while back where an Asian water dragon had hatched from an egg at the Smithsonian National Zoo. And the keepers were shocked because the mother had never been with a male water dragon. So they did some genetic testing and they discovered that the newly hatched female born on August 24th, 2016 had been produced through parthenogenesis. Hmm. Now, it's a Greek word that means virgin creation, but it specifically refers to female asexual reproduction. 
And it's surprisingly common throughout the tree of life, and is found in a variety of organisms, including plants, insects, fish, reptiles, and even birds. And because mammals, including human beings, require certain genes to come from sperms, mammals are incapable of parthenogenesis unless you, you know, ascribe to certain religious texts or religious beliefs. So sure, but they're still not claiming that it was some sort of scientific process. So they're they're outside that realm anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the vast majority of animal species do reproduce sexually, but females of some species are able to produce eggs containing all the genetic material required for reproduction. And the females of these species, which include some wasps, crustaceans, and lizards, reproduce only through parthenogenesis and are called obligate parthenogens. Hmm. A larger number of species experience spontaneous parthenogenesis, best documented in animals kept in zoo settings. And spontaneous parthenogens typically reproduce sexually, but may have occasional cycles that produce developmentally ready eggs. And they've also learned that spontaneous parthenogenesis may be a heritable trait, meaning females that suddenly experience parthenogenesis might be more likely to have daughters that can do the same. Well, you would assume so, because I think that aren't the eggs they create basically clones of themselves, right? Because there's no added genetic material. I guess that's true. They must be clones of themselves. There's a piece later that kind of indicates that under certain amounts of stress that Mm. they will resort to sexual reproduction, I guess, to add a bit of diversity just to produce hopefully stronger offspring. But it's obviously, you know, we're talking about it so far as if it's like totally easy, a thing that happens naturally. But for parthenogenesis to happen, there are a few things that have to successfully occur in succession. So first, females have to be able to create egg cells without stimulation from sperm or mating. But then secondly, the eggs produced by females need to begin to develop on their own, forming an early stage embryo, and then finally they have to hatch. Alternatively, the egg can be faux-fertilized by leftover cells from the egg production process known as polar bodies. So whichever method kicks off the development of the embryo will ultimately determine the level of genetic similarity between Mm. mother and offspring. So it's not always going to be a clone. Okay. And the events that trigger parthenogenesis are not fully understood, but they do appear to include environmental change. So like I kind of mentioned, in species that are capable of both sexual reproduction and parthenogenesis, like aphids, stressors like crowding or predation may cause females to switch from parthenogenesis to sexual reproduction, but not the other way around. And there's an example of at least one type of freshwater plankton. If the water's too salty, it can also cause the switch. So even though spontaneous parthenogenesis appears to be rare, it does provide some benefits to the partner who can achieve it. In some cases, <laughs> this really blew my mind, it can allow females to generate their own mating partners. Oh, oh wow. so they can give birth to a, <laughs> okay. to a male even though, wow. <laughs> right. They can, they can give birth to a male who can then be a future mating partner. This is a little Game of Thrones, but whatever. Um, between 1997 and 1999, a checkered garter snake kept at the Phoenix Zoo gave birth to two male offspring that ultimately survived to adulthood. Now, if a female mated with her parthenogenetically produced son, that would constitute inbreeding. So my <laughs> initial shudder reaction feels super valid. You're correct. Here. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and while inbreeding can result in a host of genetic problems, from an evolutionary perspective, it's better than having no offspring at all. Sure, it's better so than dying. Abil- yeah. <laughs> right. Like if your species is going to die off unless this is the way to go, I mean, you know, it's kind of a Hail Mary, right? <laughs> no pun intended here. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The ability of females to produce male offspring through parthenogenesis 
this also suggests that asexual reproduction in nature may be more common than scientists had ever realized. Current research on parthenogenesis seeks to understand why some species are capable of both sex and parthenogenesis, and whether occasional sexual reproduction might be enough for a species to survive. We'll know more. <laughs> I feel a little bad for the male aphids because it's like, you know, they don't normally get to have sex unless the entire colony is threatened. Normally the women are like, no, nah, we don't need you. And it's only when it's like, uh-oh, a predator's taking out most of our colony. I guess we'll mate with you. Like, it, just feels, it feels very unkind. It really puts into perspective our ethical quandaries about, you know, cloning and out in the animal kingdom. They're just like, I don't know. Like, it's fine. Might make myself today. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Might create a baby and then mate with it. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does sort of pose a future, though, where, like, you know, if Kim Kardashian wanted to have children, she didn't need Kanye West. I may support that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it feels very exclusionary. I don't know that a clone of Kim Kardashian is really what we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but are we also trying to go for the offspring of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West? Right, Woo! right, right. It's one of those, you know, it's species dying out or do you go with the uncomfortable choice? You know, eh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.